from Pro Bono Students Canada, the University of Calgary's Faculty of Law, and CJSW 90.9, this is Hearsay. Welcome to the January episode of the Hearsay Podcast. I'm Katrina Thompson. And I'm Liam Walmsley. And today we're going to be talking about occupier liability and slip and falls and what can happen when uh, you get injured on campus, things like that. So we're lucky we have an interview with a lawyer in the area that we are going to be talking about. So we're just going to start off by talking about some hypothetical situations you may have experienced If you're walking to school and you pass by your neighbor's house and they haven't yet shoveled the ice or snow away, if you've ever slipped and maybe you rolled your ankle, something like that, we want to talk about the law governing these areas and what remedies are available to you if you get hurt doing something like that. Maybe you're on campus going up some stairs and you slip on some ice. We want to make sure that um, we understand what's available to us and how to protect ourselves. So that's our goal in the podcast today is just to provide some insight on these topics. We'd like to let you know that the Hearsay Podcast is not legal advice. One of the leading cases in this area is Waldick and Malcolm. In this case, Malcolm rented a residence and Waldick would visit the residence and get his hair cut as he was uh, the brother of Miss Malcolm. On one occasion, there had been an ice storm four days prior to him visiting. When he went to visit, he noticed the dangerous situations with the ice and made sure he parked near grass and walked very carefully into the house. The sister had requested he go back to the car to obtain her cigarettes, and when he did, he put on his winter boots and slipped and fractured his skull. He sought a legal remedy against the owners of the residence, but that was taken on by the Malcolms as they were the occupiers at the time of the incident. They tried to defend their claim by saying that they had cleared the snow, but they had not salted or sanded the property, which was found to be the standard in the situation after an ice storm. So if I'm understanding this right, if you know people are coming onto your property, you should take reasonable steps to ensure it's safe. Is that right? Yeah. So in Alberta, we have the Occupier's Liability Act, and this actually sets out that there is a duty for occupiers to take reasonable steps to ensure the safety for any visitors who are coming onto their property. So in that Waldick case, it comes across as pretty cut and dry. I mean, you leave ice on your driveway and you invite someone to walk up your driveway, you pay the price. But is it always so clear? Yeah, so sometimes cases have those elements that are very clear to connect, you know, the occupier not doing something and then the... um, plaintiff having the fall on this occupier's premises where they did not clear. But in a lot of cases, it's not so cut and dry. So there's one in Edmonton that happened in 2018 where a young man died after being kicked out of a bar on a freezing cold night. And he had been kicked out for being too intoxicated, which I'm sure we've all witnessed at bars happening. But the hosts there had kicked this young man out and he had no way of getting home. He only had $10 in his wallet, which is not enough for a cab home. And so The family of this young man wanted the bar to be held responsible. And is this a case that's since been resolved, or is this something we're still waiting to hear about uh, the court's opinion? We're still waiting to hear back on this case. And the problem is that there is legislation for 
bars and hosts who are economically benefiting from the relationship. And they're told that they have to do everything they can and take all the reasonable steps to ensure the safety of their patrons. But in this case, that is what is up for argument is whether or not they did take all the reasonable steps. So in some articles that I've come across, they said that they had sent him home with a friend, whereas in other articles, they had said that he was just sent out on his own without being asked any questions and just kicked out of the bar. Now, as a law student, I spend, seems like, 90% of my time here on campus. So my biggest concern is injuries that happen in a space like this. I mean, say I'm walking up the stairs to Mac Hall during the winter, which seems like most of the semester is, uh, and I slip and I think I have a concussion. I mean, what should I, what should I go through? What should I do? So there's some questions you should ask. The first one would be, who could be held liable or at fault in this situation? So obviously, in this case, it would be the university and the um, companies that they hired to clear the snow and the ice, and then ask, was it salted? Was it sanded? Were there steps taken to ensure the safety of those steps? And in Alberta, you have 24 hours under bylaws to clear snow and ice, or you can be fined. Your first fine would be $250, your second one would be $500, and your third one would be $750. So the campus is pretty good at making sure they clear in time. So it would be a good question to ask, did they take those steps? Another one is, did anyone witness it? So you have someone who makes sure that they saw it happen and they can confirm that you did slip in this area, just because that would help your, um, your case there. And then also, what conduct did you take? Were you walking? Were you running? What kind of footwear were you wearing? Were you on your phone? Were you texting? Or were you being reasonable? So with all this being said, I am not an expert on this topic. I just know what I've read and looked into a little bit, but let's turn to someone who does know a lot more about it. We have Christopher McDougall here, a lawyer at Presler Law Firm. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your practice? Uh, so my practice right now is personal injury, uh, so plaintiff personal injury that deals with uh, motor vehicle accidents, um, other types of uh, accidents that result in injuries, uh, whether it be slip and falls, trip and falls, dog bites, product liability, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, in terms of my background, um, I, uh, I went to undergrad in molecular biology and genetics, and then after that somehow did a pivot to law, and then after that you just kind of fell into, the, into personal injury uh, as, a, as a career. Oh, that's awesome. Could you describe to us what your typical day looks like? Uh, so there's a lot of, it, it's a lot of uh, sort of attention deficit kind of stimuli going back and forth. So lots of telephone calls. Lots of emails coming in, uh, hundreds of emails in a day. Uh, lots of people coming into my office. I also manage the office, uh, and we have over 60 people here. So um, if people have questions, uh, whether they be lawyers about cases, uh, they come in and talk to me. Uh, clients, I have my own file load, so if clients are calling, I'm picking up the phone and talking to them. Uh, and I'm trying to get things done, either through um, telephone calls and, and emails. So the day is a series of communications uh, and then hopefully a little bit of quiet time where I can actually work on uh, more substantive things uh, like settlement offers or mediation briefs or applications or trial submissions. Um, and that usually happens at the end of the day. Okay. So that sounds like a long day. Do you do uh, about nine to five or? No. Um, I'm, I'm in, yeah. So it's, it is a long day. So 10, 12 hour days are, are pretty common. Uh, and then working on the weekends is also a, a, a pretty common thing because it's a good quiet time to get stuff done. So it's definitely not a nine-to-five job. Yeah, a lot more than that. Sounds like a lot of work. 
What kind of cases are most common in your line of work? Uh, so any kind. So motor vehicle accidents are by far the biggest source of personal injury. Uh, so motor vehicle accidents end up being um, the most common type of case by quite a large margin. Do you have uh, more rear-enders or are they big, um, big files with big injuries? Uh, well, those are not mutually exclusive things. Uh, many people are significantly injured in rear-end accidents. Rear-end rear accidents are actually the most common type of accident, um, and they're also probably the easiest one to deal with uh, from, a, from a legal perspective because liability is almost never in dispute. So we have lots of rear-end accidents, but, of course, that's not the only way accidents occur. Uh, and we handle, uh, basically, if there's an intake, we listen to the circumstance of the accident, and they are fault-based claims. So we have to be able to identify a tortfeasor, someone who did something wrong. And if we can identify a tortfeasor, which is usually another driver, but not always, sometimes there's another circumstance uh, or, or another extraneous party that might cause a motor vehicle accident, um, we will take those cases. And then when it comes to quantum, uh, that's also a consideration. Uh, if, if somebody is very, very severely injured in an accident that liability is questionable, we're more likely to take that case because it's worth a lot more money than if somebody um, somebody has a minor injury in a questionable uh, a questionable accident. Oh, okay. Do you also get a lot of slip and falls? Yes. Would you say because of the location in Vancouver, there's more motor vehicle accidents, and compared to somewhere else where it might be harsher weathers, there might be more slip and falls. Uh, I, I Probably. I mean, I haven't done a statistical analysis of it, but I mean, uh, a lot of slip and falls focus on ice, and there's not a lot of ice in Vancouver most of the time. But what I can say, because uh, our, our office also has an office in, uh, in Ontario, and I don't know numbers, so I wouldn't be able to compare who does more. But from, from my anecdotal observations, even though there's less ice in, in Vancouver, when there is ice, people are less prepared to deal with it. Uh, so you might get uh, a higher proportion of slip and falls in that in that time frame. That definitely makes a lot of sense. What do you think should a person look out for to indicate that their suffering could lead to some legal remedies in a motor vehicle accident or a slip and fall? See, so you're always looking for uh, somebody who's at fault because we deal with fault-based claims. So motor vehicle accident is actually very complicated. So, I mean, in, in British Columbia, where I'm based, uh, we now have new regulations that, that dictate minor injuries and non-minor non injuries and actually influence a lot of the legal rights that somebody might have. Uh, and it's still kind of being worked out because the, the laws came in, but it hasn't really been adjudicated yet. Uh, so in that case, uh, if you're injured in a motor vehicle accident um, and somebody else is at fault, then you may or may not have a claim depending on the severity of your injury, and, and calling a lawyer is a good idea. With a different type of injury, like a slip and fall, trip and fall, product liability, what we're looking for is a relatively obvious hazard that is clearly somebody else's fault. Because there are many accidents that happen in life where just nobody's at fault. And I'll give you an example, stairs. Um, you can have a perfectly good set of stairs and somebody can trip and fall down them and get really, really injured. And that's just not anybody's fault or, or arguably the person who tripped. Um, so looking for a specific hazard uh, would, would be important. Do you think that somewhere like a university would be more responsible for clearing snow or ice off their stairs? Off their stairs? Somewhere like a university? Um, 
they're high volume. So when we're looking at the standard of care of a premises uh, a premises owner or an occupant, uh, an occupier under the law, we look at the character of the premises and the use that it's being uh, to which it's being put. Um, so if you look at a university, I, I mean, and this is I, I don't know if I've I know we have cases against universities. I don't know if I have a specific one, but the, what comes to mind is you've got a lot of people walking around, but you also have a very big property. So they're walking around over a large area. Um, so there, there's going to be a duty of care uh, and a standard of care that relates to, to, to both of those factors. So high volume and the high volume places would require uh, more uh, attention. And you're also going to have low volume places because these campuses can be over such large areas that you might get places where, where people just are less likely to go in winter temperatures. Uh, and maybe they don't need to put as much effort into that area. Um, and, and that's how you would start the analysis. Okay, so it would kind of boil down to what we think the standard of care would be for the areas dependent on their volume and things like that. Right, so commercial premises, for example, uh, and you know, they're going to have a, generally a high duty of care because they're inviting people to come onto their premises. And they're saying, come, come here, you know, look at the stuff that we have. And by implication, they're kind of telling the public, you're going to be safe when you come on our on our property, uh, and they're they're actually making money by by doing so. And then we contrast that with kind of two other situations, which one one of them would be uh, the homeowner uh, just clearing the driveway, clearing the walkway, uh, which is going to have a different standard because they're not typically inviting people over for for profit or, or not a high volume of people. And then there's uh, public like actual public municipal sidewalks and roads and things like that, which which have a different analysis as well. So you're responsible for making sure that your walkways are clear, but to a lesser extent than a university. Uh, I don't know if you could make that a general rule. Like, I don't know if you could actually just state that as, a, uh, as an absolute legal axiom. Um, but in most circumstances, the university probably has a higher standard of care uh, that, that requires more um, sophisticated attention than a homeowner. Okay. And what about, you were saying, um, hosts that are bringing guests in to have like a, a consumer kind of relationship where they're benefiting from them coming in and drinking, say alcohol, should they make sure that those areas are even more clear because the patrons are going to be maybe under the influence when they leave? Yes, and, and this is exactly the analysis that you would go through. Cause you, you, I mean, some of it, there's a common sense element to it. So if you're in, inviting someone onto your premises and asking them to come there and actually pay you money for a service, and this is how you, you benefit and you profit. And the thing that you're serving is alcohol, uh, which is something that you know is going to intoxicate them and make them more vulnerable to hazards, um, whether they, they be unusual hazards uh, or even normal hazards like normal stairs or, or um, even just normal straight walkways sometimes, then you do owe them a, a heightened duty of care. And if, if there's going to be ice on your premises and you're sending out, say it's 2 a.m. and the bar gets out and you're sending out a bunch of drunk people to the, uh, to the parking lot and that parking lot is full of ice, uh, it's foreseeable that those people are going to fall and injure themselves. So, so you definitely have a heightened duty of care uh, and, and, and must, must maintain a heightened standard of care uh, relative to that risk. And do you think that heightened standard of care would carry over to someone not benefiting from consumers purchasing alcohol from them, but just coming over for a party, like throwing a party and then knowing your guests will be consuming alcohol? So you would have a heightened duty of care. Like if you're, so you're com comparing a bar to like a house party, yeah. for example, 
Uh, if you're inviting people over to your house and you know they're coming and you know they're going to be drinking and you know they're going to be leaving afterwards, that does impose on you a duty of care to make sure that they're going to be reasonably safe and it's going to be more than uh, the duty of care that you are, the standard of care is going to be more than uh, a day or a night where nobody is expected to come over and nobody's drinking and nobody is leaving. However, it's going to be lower than the commercial establishment. Uh, the, the cases are pretty clear on that, that the commercial establishments, there, there is an extra uh, level of onus that is placed on them because they're profiting from that activity. Okay. Could you also now, since we're talking with the injury, let's say someone has suffered an injury, what should they do to ensure that their case is going to be strong and they collect all the correct information? Uh, so the first thing is, is liability. So you always want to know who's at fault uh, and then what, what the hazard is. So it, it's sort of case dependent. So if you're in a motor vehicle accident, you need to know who hit you. Uh, so that's, that's the, the key right, right away is who hit me, get the license plate, get the license, uh, and get the name of the person, take a picture of their driver's license. Uh, and then the second thing is, well, who's at fault for the accident? Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. If it's not, you're going to want a witness who can actually, uh, someone at the scene who's like, oh, yeah, I saw everything. That guy, you know, turned left right in front of you something like that. If it's going to be a slip and fall, trip and fall, then you're going to want a, 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 clear, a clear description of what the hazard is. And photographs, again, are an excellent source of that. So if it's ice, take pictures of the ice. If it's a, a lip in the sidewalk where, you know, there's two inches, a two-inch lip and you tripped over that, take pictures of the lip. Um, again, witnesses are important. But with the premises, at least, it's a little bit easier to determine who's at fault because you can determine the legal owner of a property and you can usually follow a chain from there to whoever would be responsible for clearing the, the, the sidewalk, you know, clearing the, the area of ice and snow. And then another one would be a dog bite, which we see a lot. Um, and because dog bites, it's not like getting hit by a car. You can't take a picture of a license plate. Um, sometimes people don't think to get the information of the dog owner, um, and, and that can be one where you know, th- th- it actually leads to, I don't know, who, you know whose dog this is, and then there's just no compensation available because you don't know who, who to go after. Oh, okay. So identifying the, the, the potential tortfeasor and identifying the hazard are the okay. two keys. And should you make sure you see a doctor too? Uh, absolutely, for for establishing the quantum. So if you have, uh, if if you're injured, uh, the first defense uh, that a, a, a defendant will say is, well, no, the event didn't happen or or it wasn't caused by a hazard. But the second defense is always, well, you weren't actually injured by this. Uh, and everyone is going to have, uh, nobody has perfect health, so everyone's going to have some level of pre-existing, um, pre-existing, maybe not symptoms, but pre-existing conditions uh, that, that are going to, you know, that are just going to be there. So then if you go to the doctor a year later and they find something or, you know, you first complain about pain in your back or your neck, uh, if you haven't, there's just been a, a, a year gap between the incident and that, it, it actually provides a pretty good argument from the defense to say, well, what does that have to do with this incident? where if you actually go to the doctor right away, there's a paper trail that shows very clearly um, you have this pre-exist, you know, your, your previous medical condition, which may have just no visits at all, so it's just empty. The incident happens, and all of a sudden you're visiting the doctor. It's a very clear paper trail. So, so seeing the doctor immediately about the injuries you sustained is, is important. Okay. So I'm a person who's fallen on ice on campus, and I've collected 
photos, things like that. I've gone to the doctor. Now I want to talk to a lawyer. Do you have any tips on what you should be asking a prospective lawyer? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, so, so you want to make sure that they practice in personal injury. It is a niche area, so I mean, people can dabble. Uh, like my firm does only personal injury, uh, and, and therefore, and, and you're not allowed to hold yourself out you know, as being experts or specialists, but that is our practice, or the focus of our practice. So we're very familiar with that area. So um, one, ex- you know, one idea would be to just make sure that the, the lawyer that you choose is familiar and, and practices in that area. Um, and, and then the other thing is you actually have to get along with your lawyer because these cases can take um, sometimes years to resolve. So somebody that you feel like you have a good relationship with, somebody who you you like and you feel like you can deal with would also be uh, an important consideration. Definitely. So personal injury, the industry has been kind of under fire in the U.S. and there's been talk about tort reform and things like that in presidential campaigns, kind of older, but I was wondering if there's anything like that in Canada that you can tell us about or if you think it's fair, that kind of criticism. I mean, I'm going to be a little bit biased as a plaintiff lawyer, so I don't think any criticism against the the plaintiff bar is particularly fair. Um, But we do have those conversations happening in Canada. Uh, In fact, in in British Columbia, the the NDP government just changed the laws, which is tort reform. They did tort reform on uh, ICBC and, and the way that motor vehicle accident claims are handled and they imposed caps on pain and suffering and a bunch of other uh, restrictions about where you can make claims, whether it goes through a tribunal or whether it goes to the courts. And many, uh, many jurisdictions in Canada, uh, I think all of them have some level of tort reform um, applied to them. And some of them in, in cases, and, and I'm not super familiar with Quebec and Saskatchewan, but, but they're, my understanding is, is complete no fault. So there's just with a motor vehicle accident, there's no right of tort. Now, that might not be absolutely correct, but that's my understanding. Uh, and Ontario, again, has had significant tort reform, and, and, it, and, and they keep reforming it um, over time, generally to make it worse for plaintiffs. And, uh, you know, that, so, so it, is a, it is a problem here, uh, and I don't think the criticism is fair because when uh, a personal injury lawyer takes a case and they want, say, an insurance company to pay a plaintiff uh, money for being injured. The only reason why that, uh, or I guess there's two reasons why an insurance company might want to play the, pay the plaintiff money, and one of them is to avoid the cost of defending the case, which we would call a nuisance settlement, which tend to be small, and, it, and it's, not a, it's not a huge concern. The other reason, um, and this is the main one, is that the plaintiff can actually go to court in front of a judge or a jury and take the decision of what their case is worth out of the hands of the parties and put them in the hands of a judge or a jury, and they award damages. And in B.C., most of these uh, cases are handled by judge alone. Uh, And these are judges are extremely experienced lawyers who who know the law and they know um, how to read people and they know how to read credibility. So if, if the law says that plaintiffs are entitled to a certain amount of money, say from a motor vehicle accident, uh, and a plaintiff takes that case, and is able to get that amount of money or, or you know, some, some variation of it from an insurance company, um, what, what has the and, – and the only threat they have is to go to court and then the judge awards them, you know, more than they could have settled for. What has the plaintiff or the plaintiff lawyer done wrong? I mean, all they did was access the justice that, uh, that, that is available 
under the law. And what tort reform does is it takes away the victim's right to access justice, um, as if when the when the lawyer is going to court in front of a judge, they're somehow bamboozling the judge into awarding some you know some sort of award of damages that's not supportable by the facts or the law, and that's just not the case. It's just not the case at all. So I, I mean, I don't. I guess I don't understand the criticism. I, I think it's propaganda more than more than criticism. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I've read a bit about it, and I also agree that the criticism is kind of coming from the people who aren't necessarily down in the dirty with the <laughs> with what's going on, like uh, plaintiff lawyers are. Thank you so much for joining us, and we really appreciate having your insight. It was very eye-opening, and I enjoyed talking with you. No problem. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye, Chris. Bye. Wow, that was a great interview. Chris is a really interesting guy. Yeah, I particularly liked the section where he was talking about plaintiffs and why they would go through this if they are falsifying a claim. Like plaintiffs wouldn't spend the three or four years it would take to go through the entire claim and, you know, go through all that just to fraud someone. Yeah, I I think it was really interesting. He framed it as propaganda when he was talking about tort reform. And I think it's interesting when you think about it because, because personal injury does have this stigma around people who are just looking to make a quick buck. Um, But the parties who are often vilified by that stigma are those victims. I mean, it's usually that individual who is up against an insurance company or up against some big business owner who has the capital to spend on a big case like this. It seems like people are choosing to support these corporations over choosing to support individuals who slip and get hurt. It actually reminds me of that McDonald's burn case from years ago where an elderly woman suffered severe burns from a coffee that was served far too hot. But the media spun the story like she was a greedy person trying to make a quick buck. The spin put on personal injury cases is certainly not new, and it seems consistently to skew in favor of the more wealthy party, like McDonald's was in that scenario. We should be careful not to judge too quickly, and to think about who benefits from the stereotype that victims who pursue personal injury claims are just in it because they are greedy. Something to think about. that concludes this hearsay episode on occupiers liability and slip and falls we'd like to thank christopher mcdougall for providing us with such good insight many thanks to the cjsw for helping us put this podcast together the hearsay is run by pro bono students canada in conjunction with the cjsw and recorded on treaty 7 land you can find more episodes of the hearsay podcast and this one at the cjsw website on spotify google podcasts and itunes thanks for listening